it's good to be in Nigeria to be with you all. My name is Mwindulambewe from Zambia, as has been mentioned, married with uh, a girl child about five years old. Pastor of Hillview Baptist Church, a church that's, uh, that, uh, that clocked four years in April, and we have just um, ordained, I think in the month of May, three elders, and so we have been wind off. Is that a concept uh, you, you understand? We've been uh, uh, set off to be on our own by the planting church, Kabata Baptist Church, that has also planted this church. The church, my name after being wind off was put to a vote before the church. Um, even though I went on the ground and labored for four years, it's not my church, amen? It's the Lord's church. So once we were wind off, it was up to the church to now decide as a congregation, do they want to continue with me or not? So I was put to the vote and thankfully went through. And so they'll be proceeding to um, induct me as the first pastor of their church autonomously this coming Sunday. So very grateful to the Lord for, for that. The, the Lord has really blessed us. Uh, we have a number of people who come to the church from the, we're in a residential area. Um, but, you know, the charismatic movement is very much alive back home. When we started, the Sunday before we launched the church, I decided to visit, because every street in our area, there's a church, there's a charismatic church. So I decided to visit five of them the, the Sunday before we launched our church. This is four years ago. Just to see what's the attendance, you know, what do they preach, and so on and so forth. I visited five churches that Sunday, 20 minutes in each church. Not one was preaching the gospel. Not one. And uh, so that uh, gave me the burden that there's a lot of work to be done here. Lots of churches, but the gospel is not preached. Uh, I would ask that you pray for Hillview Baptist Church and the work we're doing on two fronts. One is that we are launching a media a social media ministry where we are recording and producing and developing video resources that we want to uh, put on, on, that, on those social media platforms. And this idea has really come from the fact that uh, we have received uh, a number of people who come to our church because they have watched the John MacArthur's and the R.C. Sproles and the Vody Bokams, if those names are familiar to some of you. And so they are, they, they've come to the Reformed faith and Reformed convictions and they are looking for churches in Zambia that hold to this. And my father, obviously, Conrad Mbewe, has been instrumental because they've seen the name Mbewe and said, no, no, this is a guy we know. This is a Zambian name. And so it's really become evident the potential that this social media have, has. And so I've felt and uh, tried to push the church towards developing this online ministry where we put these resources online to reach people. And these days when people are stuck in traffic, what are they doing? They're scrolling, right? 
scrolling Facebook. So we want to attack that space and put uh, resources there. We've recorded uh, several videos. We're ready to launch in July, but pray for that ministry. We've hired someone part-time to record those resources and put them together, edit them nicely, and we hope to begin rolling those out. So pray for that ministry. We don't want it to be for ourselves. We want to reach the masses. We want to reach other people with the truth of God's word and with the gospel. The second one is that we are also planning to launch a new church plant just the next, uh, the, the high density area that is right next to ours. And uh, so we are looking for a man. Uh, is there any man you can send me with, uh, Pastor? who we can send to that area to start a new work there. So pray particularly. We're going to start work there doing uh, evangelism and probably in time start services once we have a core group there. But we do need a man who we can send on the ground to develop that work. So we're looking for a man. Pray for us that we would find uh, a man. Amen. Please turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 where we have uh, a miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ performs for a fellow who had been invalid for 38 years. Let me begin reading verse 1 down to verse 17. Bible reads, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is God's word. Well, I want to title the message Sovereign Grace. Sovereign Grace. The word sovereign means highest rule or highest authority. Nigeria is a sovereign nation. does not get its instructions from anywhere outside of Nigeria. It stands alone as a sovereign nation. Christ stands alone as sovereign. Uh, he doesn't get instructions and commands anywhere. He does as he pleases. He does say that he submitted himself to the Father, but he did that willingly. He humbled himself before the Father and in that way began to get instructions from him. But he is sovereign. Grace. The word grace means unmerited favor. One who does not deserve the favor of someone but is given that favor anyway. That's what we call grace. I think in this story of the healing of this man, we see the sovereign grace of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. What, what do I mean by that? We see that the Lord Jesus grants grace to whom he pleases. It's up to him. And sometimes those choices may not please us, Many times the people whom God chooses to grant grace are not the people that we would choose. There are people who would prefer not to receive grace. There are people who would regard undeserving of grace. There are people elsewhere who would identify and say this one is more deserving than this other one. But God doesn't follow our standards and our ideas. He's sovereign. And he grants his grace to whomever he pleases. Let's look at it in this story. We are told here about a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. Multitudes of sick people gathered at the pool because of some superstitious belief that some, the pool had some miracle working power. That every once in a while, this power came into the pool and it was evident by the stirring of the water, the disturbance of the water, and the first sick person to jump in was healed of their infirmity. Those who are critical of the Bible and, uh, you know, in the last few centuries have referred to this story to discredit the Bible because for many years, this pool could not be found in Jerusalem. The site was unknown. And uh, they said, you see, the Bible is, is false. We can't find this uh, pool. Uh, it's described as having five colonnades. These are shades, five shades. And they say, we, we can't find this pool anywhere. However, uh, in time, this pool was 
found and has been found. And uh, the reason why it was difficult to spot is that it's actually two pools that are next to each other. And there are four shades on each side, but there's a shade that is right in the middle where the two pools meet. And so the Bible is accurate, in fact, that this was a, a pool with five shades. So this pool did indeed exist. However, the idea that it healed people was nothing more than superstition and myth. There is no such idea in scripture or in the writing of uh, the scholars around that time about a pool which healed people. There appears to be nothing, this appears to be nothing more than a legend, a story by which many people were misled not unlike the stories you hear in Nigeria about some person somewhere who is able to heal you. But just as people flock to these so-called healers, people flocked to this pool. We are told multitudes of sick people stood and waited around the pool, spent days on ends, weeks, months, waiting for the pool to be stirred and they would all rush in to be healed. Jesus goes to the pool and out of the multitude of people who were there, blind, lame, and so on, Jesus spots and singles out one particular individual who he heals. Four things are apparent about this man from the text. Let's look at them in turn. Number one, he was unable to heal himself. Verse 5 to verse 7. We see that this man had been in his state for just under 40 years. 40 years. It's a long time. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And even though he believed that the pool had healing power to cure him of his infirmity, he had no capacity to get into the pool in time to be healed. Others would get in ahead of him. At least a blind man still has the, the legs intact. All he needs is someone to whisper to him, hey, my friend, the pool is ready. And he can run there though he is blind. But an invalid a man, a man who is uh, who was in his state, who couldn't walk, who couldn't run, was at a disadvantage. He was unable to help himself into that pool in a timely manner. By the way, for those uh, struggling with the idea that, uh, there's, uh, that these people embraced that there was some pool that could uh, heal, we, we must recognize that in scripture, healing is not by agility. Healing is not for the, 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 the quickest and the cleverest and for the one who can get there in time. And this is one of the lies that are propagated by healers, that when the healing fails, there's something wrong with you. You are not sharp enough. You are not quick enough. You don't have faith enough. That's not how the healing of God works. It does not depend on one's agility. There's no first come, first serve basis. 
when God is at work. Anyway, this man believed in the healing power of the pool, but even that belief, with that belief, he still had no capacity to make it to the pool in time. He was unable to help himself. You can almost imagine a strong wind blowing and the water begins to be disturbed. Tens, perhaps hundreds of sick people are jumping in before he can get anywhere near it. He says there was no one to help him get into the pool. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up. And while I'm trying to make my way in, another steps down before me. Secondly, he was unaware of Jesus' ability to heal. This man was deceived, but even in his deception, he had no ability to access this pool which he thought could heal. To make matters worse, this man could have easily missed out on the opportunity to be healed by Jesus because he was ignorant that this is a man who can heal me. Verse 6, Jesus asks him a million dollar question. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This is like rubbing a lamp and being offered the fulfillment of your biggest wish. But look at how unaware this man was of who exactly is asking him this million dollar question. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. He didn't know that the man who was asking him the question could actually heal him. Right here, he could have missed out on the only real opportunity he had and would probably ever have of being healed of his infirmity. Thankfully, Jesus had set his mind on healing him. As unable and unaware as he was, Jesus still healed him. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, at this point, we might be feeling for the man. What could he possibly do about believing a myth about a poor? Most of those people gathered there believed it. There's nothing he could do about his ignorance about Jesus. If he didn't know, he did not know. We, we can't be too harsh on him for that. But he's about to lose serious points now. Notice with me that he was not just unable to help himself, not just unaware of Jesus' ability to help him, but he was actually undeserving of Christ's help. Verse 14. It's clear from the second part of the story here. Jesus, we are told, disappears into the crowd after healing him. That should give you an idea of how big that crowd was. He couldn't find the man who had healed him. In any case, the man is discovered by the Jewish leaders who did not allow people to carry their mats and perform these kinds of acts on the Sabbath. 
Later Jesus finds him in the temple and it is here that we discover that this man's 40 year period of paralysis was deserved. Verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well then what does Jesus say? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This man's 40 year paralysis was God's judgment on him for his wickedness. You had sinned and this was the reason why you were paralyzed for 38 years. Don't go back the same path. Otherwise something worse may happen to you. We are not told what he did but Jesus clearly reveals that it was his sinfulness that resulted in the judgment of God upon him for those many years of paralysis. Now we need to be careful. Not everyone who is suffering from illness suffers out of the judgment of God upon their sin. In fact, Jesus will make that point in chapter 9 of John when there's another case of, of a person born blind this time and the assumption is that he is that way because he is a sinner Jesus says no uh, John 9 verse 1 as he passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him Rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Jesus answered him it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Not all illness, not all suffering, not all hardship is a result of judgment upon our sin. But it's clear from the man in John 5 that some illness, some hardship is a result of the judgment of God upon uh, our sin. This man was undeserving of healing. If anyone was not to be healed, it was he. He was in that condition because of his sinfulness and it was the judgment of God. But if you are not convinced that this man was not the best candidate that day to receive Jesus' help, Let's look at one more thing. We should put the matter to rest. Notice that he was ungrateful for Jesus' help. Verse 15. We finally see the true colors of this man. Before he may have won our sympathy, but now we see the real him and perhaps even get an idea of why God had judged him so harshly. Not only does he throw Jesus under the bus, when he's asked why he picked up his mat in verse 10 and 11, so Jesus, uh, look at verse 10 and 11. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's, it's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, the man who healed me, that man said to take up your bed and walk. He says, it's him. It's not me. Notice that now when he knows the identity of the man who healed him, he goes back to report Jesus to the leaders. Verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing may, worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Why go and report Jesus for this act? Immediately identifies that it's Jesus, he goes straight to report Jesus to those who hate him. Now, if you've been following John from chapter 1 up to chapter 5, where we are now, John has clearly been telling us that Jesus is fully aware of everything. He's fully aware of the future even. In John chapter 1, he tells, shocks Nathaniel by telling him that he saw him under the fig tree when there was no way for Jesus to know that he was under the fig tree. In John chapter 2, Jesus did not entrust himself to those who were excited about his healing and wanting to be his friend. At the end of John chapter 2, he tells us Jesus did not entrust himself to them even though they claimed to be believers because he knew their hearts. In John chapter 3, we, saw, we, we, we see there that he exposes Nicodemus, his need to be born again. Jesus was not fooled by his credentials. And even in John chapter 4, he knows the indiscretions of an adulterous woman when there's no way he could have known. She even says you must be a prophet to know that. So when we come to John 5, we know that Jesus is fully aware that this man, if I heal this man, he will oust me. He will report me. He will expose me. He will endanger me by reporting me to the leaders. But Jesus still heals him. So we know that the behavior of this man is not surprising to Jesus. But the question is, why does Jesus heal him anyway? Why did Jesus heal this man? The sovereign grace of God. Verse 16 of John 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. When Jesus healed this undeserving and grateful man, he was doing the father's bidding. In verse 19, we read it of John 5, but listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater the works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. God the father had handpicked this gentleman to be the recipient of his grace. As undeserving as he was. Sovereign grace is about God's freedom to show grace to whomever he wills for his own greater and higher purposes that we may not even understand. 
But he nonetheless chooses to show grace to those whom he wills. Like I said at the beginning, sometimes when we look at certain people and see how far away they are from God, how much they hate God, and how deep they are in their sin, how bad their character is, we wonder if they can ever be saved. Well, let this miracle be a testimony that even they can be saved, no matter how bad they are. That God is not put off by what puts us off. That's not a problem for God. He can still save those who are as evil as evil can be. Paul says, I'm undeserving of the grace of God. I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. And yet his grace abounded to me. If you had gone to the first century church and said, can you list down those who you would never want to see in heaven? Those who you would never want God to save? Guess who would be one on the list? Number one. Apostle Paul. He was so bad that when he was converted, they couldn't even welcome him in the church. For fear that it's just a trick and this fellow is going to kill us. But when it comes to the Lord, God is not in the slightest affected by the extremity of the case. No case is a lost case. Never doubt God's ability to save even those who look like they are beyond redemption. God is sovereign in how he dispenses his grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he can save? Prove it by appealing to him with believing prayer to save even those who humanly speaking appear beyond redemption. But this also points us to how we become Christians. And let me end by demonstrating this. How do we become Christians? We have to see that we are unable. This man certainly saw it. You can give him credit for that. He saw that even with this potential healing pool that could save him, even though it was right, I mean, the guy was sleeping next to it, right? On a mat. But even if it's here, by the time I'm rolling myself, I can't even roll myself to just launch myself into the pool. I'm completely unable. Healing is just here. And yet I can't access it. Do you know that's how we become Christians? By admitting inability. By saying, Lord, I can't get there from here. What you require, I can never deliver. I can never give. The standard that you require, I can never rise to. I am unable. To become a Christian, you must recognize your spiritual paralysis. I can't be good enough. I might be good enough than that one, than that one, than that one. Might be better than that one. But I am still not good enough to rise to the standard that you require. I cannot obey 
my way into heaven. And on my worst, on my best day, I still deserve the wrath and punishment of God. Completely unable. Do you know those who have been in heaven? Those who admit their inability. Those who acknowledge their inability. This man was unaware of Jesus' saving power. How are we saved? We have to be aware that only Christ can save us. Do you believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe that what Jesus did on the cross to pay for your sins is enough? The people I encounter back home are those who when you ask them, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And immediately you can almost walk away and say, ah, it's all good. This one believes. This one has faith in Christ. They're a Christian. But the number one thing that kills people and that will be responsible for people who claim to believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, the number one thing that will be responsible for landing them in hell despite that belief is they don't think it's enough. They think, yes, Jesus Christ has died for my sins, he's paid for my sins, but I must add something to that. I must add my works. And so it's not a faith alone in Jesus Christ, it's faith in Jesus Christ plus my works. Jesus brings what he can, I also bring what I can with my works, and together, hopefully, we are able to submit this to God the Father and I am saved. No. Those who are Christians are those who say I'm unable, but someone is able. And him alone. This man was undeserving. For you to become a Christian, you need to recognize that you are undeserving. Undeserving of God's sovereign grace. This man was able to be healed of a physical ailment without seeing how undeserving he was, but that can't work when it comes to salvation. You must see that you are undeserving. If you are going to be saved from the punishment of God upon your sins, you have to be able to accept that you do not deserve his grace. In other words, you have to plead for mercy. Lord, save me even though I don't deserve it. Even though probably others may deserve it and I don't. All I can do is cast myself before you and plead for mercy. If he opened your heart and saw the sin that was in there, he would want nothing to do with you. And finally, you have to be grateful. This man was not grateful for what Jesus did to him. Are you grateful? Are you grateful that Jesus came down and died for your sins, that he paid the greatest cost to save you? If you are, you must prove it by asking him for mercy. 
you know, there's nothing like, well, Jesus Christ came to die for me. Uh, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to save me, to save sinners, but I, I think I'm okay, and, and uh, that's fine. Do you know that when a king offers you a gift and you reject it, it's an offense to him? There is no safe ground. There's nothing like God has offered me salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, but I'm not interested. As soon as you say that I'm not interested, you indict yourself. When a king offers you a gift, you must accept it. Or be on his bad side. Or attract his wrath and his anger. You cannot reject the only source of salvation who is Jesus Christ and live to tell the tale. God is going to deal with you for rejecting his son. God is sovereign and he sovereignly shows his grace to whomever he wills. And so you might be here and you feel that you are too sinful. You might be here and you feel that you have been too hypocritical. You might be here and you might be feeling I've done too much for God to want anything to do with me. God is sovereign in his grace. And though you'd never qualify for other people, if you plead for his mercy, peradventure, he might show mercy on you. And he might show you grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the fact that uh, it's not up to human beings to determine whether we should be saved or not, whether we should be shown mercy or not. If it were, very few would make it. But it is up to you. We thank you that you sovereignly dispense your grace even to those who would never be shown grace by others. Father in heaven, we ask that this might cause us to cast ourselves before you and plead for mercy, recognizing that peradventure, perhaps, it would please you to show us mercy as sinful as we may be. Do these things in Jesus' name.